Well, good morning and welcome to Passing the Baton number 43 and it's the 27th of November 2010. The title of this teaching is The Power of a Risen Life. So let's pray, shall we, before we start. Father, thank you that all things come of you and of thine own do we give you. I want to thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being alive at this time. You are doing something so phenomenal with your body, your bride, your church, and I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of something big, and I am, Lord. You are such a great God. I bless your name. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. I bless your name. Holy Spirit, please lead this study. Without you, there is no teacher. Lord Jesus, be magnified in your church. Amen. 1 Chronicles 29.11 in the Amplified Bible says this, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and yours it is to be exalted as head over all. The keys to the risen life are focus, intimacy and abiding. As is often the case, I received something in the run-up to the preparation of this message. It was a cry from the heart to God's people to revive their passionate love of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the course of the text, the writer said this. It was headed up, Faded Passions. One of America's best-known worship leaders recently confided to me a personal heartache he faces repeatedly in churches where he ministers. Often it feels to me as if for many of our people singing praise songs and hymns on a Sunday morning has turned into an affair with Christ. I was stunned by his imagery. An affair with Christ. He continued, too many of us are far more passionate about lesser temporal concerns such as getting ahead at the office, finding personal happiness in a hobby, driving a new car or rearing well-balanced children but we rarely ever get that excited about Christ himself, at least on any consistent basis, except when we enter a sanctuary on a Sunday. Then for a while we end up sort of swooning over Christ with feel-good music and heart-stirring prayers, only to return to the daily grind of secular seductions to which for all practical purposes we are thoroughly married. He concluded, Christ is more like a mistress to us. <clears throat> He's someone with whom we have these periodic affairs to reinvigorate our spirits so we can return refreshed to engage all the other agendas that dominate us for most of the time. Feel good music and heart-stirring prayers if you're lucky. I worry sometimes about where the church is headed, where Christian music is headed. It seems that adulation is for the worship leaders, not Jesus. Just another form of Christian idolatry. The world and the church are holding hands. And the quote was from a book by David Bryant, entitled, Who is God's Son and Why Does It Matter? It speaks for itself. Focus, intimacy and abiding are no longer optional. We're in days where church attendance, church membership, half-hearted, lukewarm Christianity isn't going to cut it. 
The purpose-driven life just isn't enough unless our purpose is that we may know him and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. John 17.3 Unless the Christ becomes our all-consuming passion, we will miss the greatest outpouring of the Spirit, the greatest move of God that has ever been witnessed by humankind, because our attention will be elsewhere. We will have been seduced by the things of the world. It isn't new. James warned about the same things in his epistle. <clears throat> James 4.4 4, Amplified For you are like unfaithful wives, having illicit love affairs with the world and breaking your marriage vow to God. Do you not know that being the world's friend is being God's enemy? So whoever chooses to be a friend of the world takes his stand as an enemy of God. Again I quote from the book. At the moment of his second coming, Christ will appear more majestic and powerful than we can possibly imagine. He will split the heavens. All humanity will see him for who he is. Who he will be on that day is precisely who he is this day. His sovereign glory then is his sovereign glory now. What he will be Lord of then, he is Lord of now. The question is, do we really know him like that? The question is, does this really matter? I recommend you get the book uh, from www.christisallbook.com I received the extract via Francis Frangie Payne's ministry, uh, which I've already forwarded to those of you who received the notes. God has brought you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now he wants to establish that light in you. You have an option, light or dark. It's perfectly possible to be in the light, but walking in darkness. Paul addresses this in Ephesians 4, 17-28, reading from the message. Since then, we do not have the excuse of ignorance. Everything, and, and I do mean everything, connected with that old way of life has to go. It's rotten through and through, get rid of it. And then, take on an entirely new way of life, a God-fashioned life, a life renewed from the inside and working itself into your conduct as God accurately reproduces his character in you. What this adds up to then is this, no more lies, no more pretense, tell your neighbour the truth. In Christ's body we're all connected to each other after all. When you lie to others you end up lying to yourself. Go ahead and be angry, you do well to be angry, but don't use your anger as fuel for revenge and don't stay angry, don't go to bed angry, don't give the devil that kind of foothold in your life. Did you used to end, make ends meet by stealing? Well, no more. Get an honest job so you can help others who can't work. It takes time through God's process with us for the light to come fully into us, but woe to us if we resist the light. Have I met Christian liars? Oh, I sure have. Have I met Christian swindlers? Yes, indeed. But he's child-proofed the process, and some take longer than others to leave the old habits behind. The problem is that when we get away with it for some time, we think that God hasn't noticed. 
Beloved, he has, and sooner or later he will rein you in and talk gently to you about it. Discipline delayed is not discipline denied. Father knows what a massive change is needed to bring us from being a sinner dislocated from him to a saint. It's called the process of sanctification and he gives us miles of rope, enough in fact to hang ourselves, which we frequently do. By the time he comes gently to us, we just have to face what he's been talking to us about for so very long. We're on a journey from sinner to much loved son. Positionally, it's a done deal. Experientially, it's our process into the risen life. A life of abundance, prosperity and favour. A life which takes us into our inheritance and our eternal reward. Cinderella didn't learn to be a princess overnight. She got the clothes, she got the prince. But the internal transformation took a little longer. The point is that we should be making process, progress in these areas and if we're not, we must ask ourselves why not? If we still endeavour to cover our tracks by lying or blaming others, if we habitually exaggerate to make ourselves look pure white and others wrong, if we still break the speed limit when we think no one's looking, if we don't give back the extra change when the cashier makes a mistake. These are basic issues we need to address and they are part of our journey from darkness into light. The grace of God will cover us while we're learning to be Christ-like. God doesn't punish our mistakes, he provides for them. But as James says in James 4:10-17 again in the message, so let God work his will in you. Yell a loud no to the devil and watch him scamper. Say a quiet yes to God and he'll be there in no time. Quit dabbling in sin. Purify your inner life. Quit playing the field. Hit bottom and cry your eyes out. The fun and games are over. Get serious, really serious. Get down on your knees before the master. It's the only way you'll get on your feet. Don't badmouth each other, friends. It's God's word, his message, his royal rule that takes a beating in that kind of talk. You're supposed to be honouring the message, not writing graffiti all over it. God is in charge of deciding human destiny. Who do you think you are to meddle in the destiny of others? And now I have a word for you who brashly announced today at the latest tomorrow we're off to such and such a city for the year. We're going to start a business and make a lot of money. You don't know the first thing about tomorrow. You're nothing but a wisp of fog, catching a brief bit of sun before disappearing. Instead, make it a habit to say, if the master wills it and we're still alive, we'll do this or that. As it is, you're fully your grandiose selves. Such, all such vaunting and self-importance is evil. In fact, if you know the right thing to do and don't do it, for you, that is evil. For you, if you know the right thing and don't do it, for you it's evil. It's sin. Foundational stuff. 
God plans for eternity. We must get to grips with this. Many of us live in a temporal state without thought of the eternal consequences of our actions. At best we're marking time, waiting for Jesus to come or, or our home call, but there's more, so much more he wants us to have and to experience. The exchange has been made, our sin for his righteousness. Our bank account is full. He now only deals with us in the righteousness of Christ, which is our ongoing developmental process. We're in a place of privilege, the beloved in the beloved. We have access to the Father through the finished work of the Son, and we are learning to live with humility in that place. The only boasting we do is from our place in Christ. As in other areas of our Christian life, there are two battles to establish us in the truth. The first battle is to get free. And the truth, when it first appears to us, is usually negative. By that, I mean we usually reject, reject it because it cuts us. When someone kindly told me some years ago I was drinking too much in an effort to de-stress myself, I did not embrace that truth with joy. I reacted to it, oh, not outwardly, but inwardly. But I took it to the Lord and of course he said, it's got to go, sweetheart. I haven't had a drop since by his grace. He's taught me how to de-stress myself in him. It is with him with whom we have to do. So whatever your besetting sin is, if you go to him with it, he will show you how to get free and be established in truth. The deal is that we need to focus on the grace of God and the fact that sin is always covered by Jesus' work on the cross. Father is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and rich in love. He will always display those attributes towards you. He will not punish you, but gently help and instruct you. He blots out our transgressions. He washes us from our iniquity, which is our willful tendency to do something abnormal, and he cleanses us from sin. Our old nature is perverse. He was crushed to set us free from it that rebellious attitude, hardening of the heart and stiffening of the neck. Born rebels we are. We have a rebellious nature and attitude. We break the speed limit, we park in the wrong place. Simple things. These are a revolt. They are a willful deviation against godly living. It's sin with a deliberate intention behind it to offend and we must not let it reign over us. So the second battle is to get free, to stay free, I'm sorry, to live it out. This is the hardest and the longest battle and you get to choose how long or how short the process is by your willing obedience to the Holy Spirit or your stubborn refusal to cooperate with him. The enemy will pester you, he will try to tempt you to go back to your old ways, he's allowed to, it's his job for goodness sake. It's part of your strengthening in order that you may be established. You get to choose whether you bear fruit in abundance or in measure 
thirty, sixty or a hundredfold. The truth must not only become true for you but in you and when it's in you it will work through you. God can't do through you what he hasn't been able to do in you. So if you have a problem right now, throw yourself on him. He will not fail you. He will teach you how to walk in the light and stay there. When you allow your carnality or your flesh to rule, you are always forfeiting or trading something, either your inheritance or your reward. We'll address these things later. God is always serious about what he asks of you and he always has a purpose in mind. He wants you to get your inheritance and he wants you to receive your rewards. But loose living will not bring either. You get to choose. You're in his school now and he calls the shots. And you can't pull the wool over his eyes. So it must become a way of life. It's not about conferences, it's not about meetings, it's not about going to church. It's about life. Everyday, ordinary life. And it is in this 24-7, everyday, ordinary life that the truth is established in you and becomes flesh upon you. To such an extent that you live it out, you become the message. Your life should be an example to others. People watch you. Are you authentic, genuine, true, reliable, dependable, honest, transparent? Is your integrity absolute? Can you be trusted? God will not trust you with anything until you've proved out in the school of life, beloved, in the seemingly little things. He's got a memory like an elephant. He just never forgets some things. He doesn't remember your sin, but he's marking your card regarding your honesty, integrity and uprightness. If you can't be trusted with little, he isn't going to trust you with much, is he? Basic stuff. Everything in your life can be turned to profit, should you choose to look at it that way, and that which you know must then be experienced. I can talk to you about loving one another until, as we used to say, the cows come home. But I cannot affect your choices when it comes to loving others. That is your part, and you can't fake it, beloved. You are either growing in the agape of God or you aren't. And the risen life is about the walk of love. Not only your walk into the agape love yourself, but that love then manifested through you to those around you. What do I mean by love? I mean gentle, affectionate, sensitive, open and persistent love. I will pursue you. God will be tough when he needs to be and I will be firm when he tells me to be. But beneath my firmness is an underground river of love. By love I mean compassion that is powered by faith and prayer to see God's best come forth in you. Correction is not rejection. 
When I have love for someone in the body, I have determined that I'm going to stand with them regardless of what they are displaying right now, because I see who they can be. I am committed to them and in covenant relationship with them whether they return this covenant love or not. Love does not need to be loved in return in order to love. We must come to the place where our love for each other is not negotiable. Whatever difficulties we encounter in relationship terms must be resolved with the foundation of love still intact. We can agree to disagree and not break covenant with each other. When we break covenant we are simply showing our immaturity and we'll have to go through the whole thing again at a higher level. You know, don't you, you never fail God's tests. You just get to take them again and again and again and again and again and again and again until you pass. But there are needless casualties and the devil laughs. He's got you on his side. If you don't think that is possible, just take a look at 2 Timothy 2, 24-26, reading now in the New American Standard Bible. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. Beloved, above all love one another and give no place to the devil. You do not want to find you have been held captive by him and doing his will. Love is about how we love, not about who loves us. I am what I love, not what loves me, says Graham Cook. And he goes on to say, this has become one of the most powerful identity statements I have ever made. It has produced a freedom that has revolutionized my relationships. Real love cannot suffer rejection because it cannot receive rejection, because it never seeks a return. It gives and loves for the joy of loving and giving without a thought of return. Love is not an investment. You're not looking for a divvy at the end of the term. It is the right thing to do. When the relationship of one person to another becomes toxic, love is still possible, even if trust has become open to discussion. Loving someone is not throwing your brains away. If someone consistently promises things to me and never delivers, I'm not going to keep on believing that they will deliver. Their track record is their track record. But in real love, we always choose to believe the best of them. If their pattern of behavior doesn't change, eventually the ability to lack of trust will bring us to a crossroads. If it's no longer possible to believe the best, we can still believe that they have the potential to become better. Love always relates to people's potential, not their actual nature. Not what you're seeing in front of your face, but what they potentially could be. Everything 
is seen through the lens of Christ. It's part of our righteousness in Christ. It's not just about doing the right thing, but more about being the right person. Be true to yourself and love others. Love overcomes our own hurts and wounds. You will get wounded, so get, get healed. God is there to heal you. Take it to him, he'll heal you. Don't walk around with it. So how do we love someone when love is not returned? In exactly the same way as if it were. We love for the joy of loving. Love means that we don't have to fix people or put them right. We simply supply them with an idea of how we see them, how we think about them and how we value them and leave it. Love doesn't seek to control another's destiny nor does it stifle their identity. Love suffers long and never gives up. God will teach us to love openly, graciously and generously. And in that process you will be rejected, misunderstood and quite possibly maligned. Your good will be evil spoken of. So what? That's all part of your training in the true love walk, the risen life. And you learn to let mercy and compassion rise in the face of unjust criticism and misunderstanding. It's not our responsibility to change people, but to give love freely and without strings. True love releases people. Love that has a foundation of dependency, on the other hand, easily becomes both stifling and toxic. We suffocate people with our expectations and demands, or we overprotect them like a security blanket, which smothers them and allows them no freedom to discover life and make mistakes for themselves. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And we earn the right to give advice. It's not ours by right. By displaying the loving kindness of the Father, we open a door of trust through which loving kindness may walk. You can measure your own growth and progress by how you respond in any given circumstance. Do you respond or do you react? There is a world of difference. Reaction is to manward. Response is to Godward. Is your immediate thought to get back at the person concerned and put your point of view? Or is your immediate response to go to the Father and ask, what does this mean? What should I do? Is there a grain of truth in this? Only you can answer those questions, whether you react or respond. Be wise. Watch your own reactions and you will find the key to where God next wants to transform you by his love. It's not enough to have a strong gifting. Gift without character is sterile. It will produce nothing lasting, nothing of eternal value because it will be exercised from the wrong motive. You will be the center. You will be the one who wants to have the both the power and the glory and you'll exert pressure to get what you want. 
we can't go into this issue of motives in ministry today but it is a big area in the church the whole issue of who we are doing things for and why we are doing them i leave you to think about that one so the risen life is about coming into maturity coming into fullness not measure being the man or woman god has ordained you to be and it is far from an automatic process and to do it we are going to have to get over our silly selves in a number of areas because we have prophetic words is no guarantee they'll come to pass they are governed by our behavior and our choices by our willingness to sit still under godly correction and to allow him to vindicate us on days without defending ourselves when we defend ourselves we almost always attack someone else think about it a good rule of life is no defense no attack then you won't have to apologize sometimes not defending ourselves comes to the point of pain we really do want to explain and defend ourselves and speak up but we do two things the first is we keep our mouths shut and the second is we wait for compassion and mercy to rise and we wait as long as it takes when it does the compassion mercy wisdom goodness and love of God will come forth from us the same stream cannot bring forth bitter and sweet water James says we just have to keep it in mind that God is our vindicator we're training ourselves to respond to God in all circumstances like everything else it's a process incidentally if you wait for it the vindication from God that is it'll never come usually by the time it does come you couldn't give a rip it doesn't matter anymore you're dead in that particular area anyway a corpse you know doesn't do an awful lot of reacting the person you need to be saved from most is you you are your own worst enemy as I am mine and people can only kill in you the things that need killing ouch so if your flesh rises it's a sure sign you need killing in that area death speaks to death flesh speaks to flesh nasty speaks to nasty I know something about you too pal we can all retaliate but if there isn't a nasty in you you don't receive a nasty and you don't respond with a nasty wait for mercy to arise if something reacts inside you likely it was your flesh that attracted the comment in the first place check it out and begin to become aware of what's happening inside you the kingdom of God is within you like uh, two cats in a bag the flesh cries out to be killed by the spirit the Holy Spirit will go straight for the throat of your carnality you know that the flesh and the spirit are like two cats in a bag be aware when you call out for more of the Holy Spirit he'll go straight for your flesh and he won't apologize you are asking him to kill you and do it quickly correct me ruthlessly deal with me severely make it quick please 
people can only kill in you the things that need killing, beloved. So stop complaining, die quietly. When you fail to bless those who persecute you or criticize you, you are establishing whether you are free or still needing some attention in that area. It's so easy to see. A corpse can't be killed, it's already dead. So if nothing needs killing, nothing can harm you. If you're dead, you can be kind, merciful and gracious under criticism or injustice or misunderstanding, whatever. And it won't have any effect. Grace and mercy will be the response. So how, you are asking, does focus, intimacy and abiding relate to all this? It's simple, beloved. When you step into carnality and defend yourself or justify yourself or try to vindicate yourself under criticism, you step out from your place of focus, intimacy and abiding and into yourself, into your flesh and fractured relationships will be the result. To stay in the place of focus, intimacy and abiding is the normal Christian life. But it isn't normal church life. Normal church life is crossless Christianity. The risen life is not normal church life. It's a life of dying daily to the old, that you might rise in the new. It's personal victory over ourselves. It is part of our inheritance and it's the process to which God is committed. He's come to kill off your flesh and he isn't apologizing because it brings us into our inheritance in Christ, into fullness rather than measure. And you have to have something to overcome, beloved, in order to be an overcomer. Knowledge without experience is just knowledge. It's book learning, it's head knowledge. We've learned a lot over the months and years about all this. And now God's saying, time for a practical sweetheart. Let's see how you do. Some of you have had hard circumstances recently and you've completely forgotten that he always follows teaching with an experience. He loves to do this. It's the way he works to establish you. Don't resist it. Don't resist him. Let God do what he wants. Let him work it in you. He so wants you to get this. It's all about Jesus' nature being manifested in you and through you. That is true freedom, beloved. You ask for an acceleration. Well, this is that. Die quietly. He is totally committed to you as a person. He is totally committed to your growth. So let him come to you and be to you what he wants to be, relationally, in the situation in which you find yourself. He wants to become to you what you need to become to others around you. So he comes to you first. Outrageous love. But he comes to you first. You receive it first. 
So we stand. I want to be what you want to give. If I move away from the discomfort of the situation, I guarantee my immaturity and miss the growth opportunity he's holding out. The first person we have to be fully honest with is ourselves. It's our responsibility to observe what we are within ourselves and then desire to be like Christ. Transformation comes when you experience his unconditional love on an ongoing basis. And you're living in progressive revelation rather than retrospective revelation where you have to look back and see what the lesson was teaching you. This causes us to become love and because it's always a part of what he's giving you, you pass on what you have freely received to everyone else. Love begets love. It's a process, step by step, and the whole time the Holy Spirit will supply what's missing in you so you are moving from measure to fullness. Every bit he can cram into you, he will. But there is a part that you have to play in this. Jude 20-21 to in the Amplified explains it. But you, beloved, build yourselves up, founded on your most holy faith. Make progress, rise like an edifice higher and higher, praying in the Holy Spirit. Guard and keep yourselves in the love of God. Expect and patiently wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, which will bring you unto eternal life. You build yourself up in the faith. It's your responsibility. Pray in the Spirit. Use that tongue. Worship. Give thanks. Keep the channel open. Keep yourself in the love of God. Don't do anything that takes you away. Abide and hide in his love for you. And finally, wait for his mercy. Don't react to people and circumstances, then you won't have to apologise. Keep your mouth shut. Wait for the mercy of God to rise in you and then take that mercy and bless those who are against you and walk away from it. Let your heart go towards God. There will always be those who don't understand you. You'll have plenty of opportunities to keep your mouth shut and your heart open. Don't do anything outside of grace, beloved. Exercise that gift of self-control. If you can give them a blessing and mean it, you position yourself for a blessing. If you speak harsh words behind their back and defend yourself and blame others, you position yourself for something negative. What you sow, you will reap. God sees everything. He hears everything. He will judge. Don't try to do his work for him. Train yourself to respond to God, not react to people in every situation or you'll surely reap what you're sowing. If you're sowing discord, strife and division, that, beloved, is what you will reap. All the time you are delaying your own ability to come into your inheritance. God is calling you up 
and you're determined to stay earthbound. He doesn't put you down. He calls you up into the future he's provided in the beloved. Grace is provided. Take full advantage of it as you grow. Stand in his favour whilst you learn to be like Christ. Grace is the power of God to enable us to change. Learn the art of cooperating with him in your own growth process. Some Christians have got no internal frame of reference. And what I'm talking about now is developing an internal frame of reference where you can admit you're wrong when you're wrong. So grace is the empowering presence of God to enable you to mature into what Father wants you to be. He's built in all your slips, trips and mistakes. Grow in grace and enjoy the journey. Give thanks and be exceedingly joyful. So you can see that memory verses won't cut it. Church attendance won't cut it. Victory declarations won't cut it. This is life lived out and truth established until you know what you know what you know. And the life and the love of Christ becomes your life. The risen life. It's flesh upon you. Nothing moves you. This is who God is for me and this is who I am in him and this is who he wants me to be for you. In this process you are so covered by God that you can afford to be magnanimous, generous, loving, patient, kind towards others, towards those who don't understand you or rise up against you. You stand in a place of favour. You have received grace and mercy, so you pass it on. You wait for grace and mercy to rise in you. You determine not to be offended, hurt or to receive rejection. You remain in the place of focus, intimacy and you abide. Everything but everything is relational. If it isn't relational, beloved, you've got religion, nothing more. You've got head knowledge. You were created for fellowship with him. You were created to be amazed, to marvel, to be astonished and to be awestruck by him. How vast he is, his nature, his kindness, his generosity, his brilliance, his everlasting love towards you, his unchanging nature. He is a God who constantly desires to reveal himself to you. Don't waste your tests and trials. They're all part of your ongoing process. It's a learning process. And the purpose of process is to bring you into the likeness of Christ. So everything that doesn't look like Jesus, he will gently remove. It's his stated purpose to bring many sons to glory. This is what it's all about. Maturity. Knowing God as he really, really is for you and declaring that to everyone around you. Some trials are fiery. They are fiery to burn off your dross. To expose to the light the things within that aren't like Christ. 
There's an old hymn that says, His only design, thy dross to remove, and thy gold to refine. Father, Papa, Dad, we cry out. It is possible to go through trials and waste them, because all we want is deliverance. But if you aspire to the risen life, if you aspire to being an overcomer, you will use every circumstance, good, bad or ugly, to lift you higher into his presence, to take you deeper into his love. Everything can be turned to profit. Everything. You cannot be an overcomer, beloved, unless you've something to overcome. You need trials to strengthen you in him. 1 John 5, 4 and 5 For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one that overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And Romans eight twenty eight. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. If you love God and you're called and walking in his purpose, this verse is yours, beloved. Everything will work together for good for you. Brilliant. If you are currently not prospering in your trials, you need to ask the Holy Spirit to show you what they are meant to be teaching you, what it is you can gain for them. Then you can always gain something in every situation. He uses every circumstance to make us like him. These things won't work together for good unless you love God, you see, and you are called according to his purpose. Conditional. The Israelites before us knew his works. Moses knew his ways. Moses had a face-on encounter with God. God talked with him as a man talks with his friend, Exodus 33:11. Enoch walked with God. Noah found favour with him. Doesn't that put a hunger in your heart to know him? Isn't it a source of amazement and astonishment? And doesn't it make you marvel that the creator of the universe seeks such an intimate relationship with us, that it's there and available for us? How perverse can we be that we don't run towards such an offer? What you think about God is the single most important thing in your life. It is essential that we know him. So the Queen sends you an invitation to a garden party. You'll go, all right. You'll spend weeks thinking about what you'll wear, who'll be there, what you'll say. How much more then? When the creator of the universe offers an invitation to be known of you, should we be excited to the point of delirium? Are we? Oh, strawberries again. Our appetites have become jaded, either through too much hype and sensationalism or too little. We've settled for such mediocrity, it's disgraceful, and I say that in love. He thoroughly enjoys the journey with you. He wants you to enjoy the journey with him. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He loves you. Through everything, beloved, God wants to establish something of himself in you. 
to cause you to know more of his benevolent nature. He's kind, caring, compassionate, generous, giving, benign, gentle, and he brings us the easiest way we will come. Make it easy for yourself and the Holy Spirit. Accept his invitation to walk with you without pulling away or running away. Make sure that any adversity causes you to prosper. Use it for your personal growth in Christ-likeness. Find out who he wants to be for you and you'll discover what he wants to do in you. If he wants you to be a warrior, he will show himself a warrior king. If he wants you to understand love, he will be love for you. Your circumstances are not going to disappear. They're here for a purpose, and that purpose is to conform you to his plan and his purpose for your life, and it is all for the good. The purpose of God for you in your situation is to establish you in the truth until it becomes true for you in your own experience. Let the Holy Spirit teach you how to flow with him. Life is a series of ebbs and flows. In flow you're in fullness. In the ebb you're in a place of hiddenness and growth. Ask him to teach you to enjoy those seasons. The high tide of excitement, anointing, impartation, experience and the low tide of his picking out the flotsam and jetsam in your life and establishing you at an ever-deepening level. Every situation you encounter is designed with you in mind and it's there to drive you into God so that you might know the power of God both to save and to keep you and that he might reveal another facet of his nature to you. The question is, what does he want to be for you right now? He keeps you in, not necessarily from, situations and circumstances in order that he may establish you in himself. The beloved in the beloved. Anything that comes against you is designed to establish three things your security, your identity, and your place of belonging. It's essential, therefore, that you develop the utmost sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. He wants to be your security and establish your identity. You belong to him. You are his peculiar treasure. You are his possession and he is jealous, very jealous over you. We started with a quote from the Old Testament where David made it quite clear that he knew that he belonged to God and everything that he had and was belonged to God. He was his possession. If you can accept this, that you are not your own, you are bought at a price, you belong to someone else. You belonged to the enemy before, now you belong to God. You come out of that darkness into light. Allow his possession of you to take possession of you. James 4 verse 5 says this, Or do you suppose that the scripture is speaking to no purpose, 
that says the Spirit whom he has caused to dwell in us yearns over us and he yearns for the Spirit to be welcome with a jealous love. He always knows what he's doing in any situation and any crisis and he will use that crisis to establish something in you. Therefore everything can be used to profit provided you know how to use it properly by standing in him, staying in him, allowing him to be your refuge and your strong tower. By asking questions, what does this mean? What should I do? How do I position myself before you? What do I pray? How can I align myself with you? What is it you're asking of me right now? Every trial and problem can be turned to profit. Sometimes in difficult and extended circumstances it seems as though his protection is gossamer thin. But it is so strong, it is so real. His capacity and ability to protect you even when everything in, in you is screaming get me out of here is outrageous. He holds you. The Lord is your keeper. You are his peculiar treasure and he jealously guards you. He is your place of safety. The keys to the risen life are focus, intimacy and abiding. Psalm 91, New American Standard He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. So staying connected isn't an option, is it? It's a necessity. If you want the presence of God, you have to be present with God. We are learning to be present with God and know his presence and be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. We are learning to hold on to him when there's nothing and no one else. And we are learning to be embraced by him alone because he is our all-sufficiency and one with God is always a majority. God has love planned for every situation you face. It is your job to discover how that love works for you in your situation. Just what facet of his great nature does he want to reveal to you? He has made provision for every situation and circumstance you will encounter. His nature is your promise. What he declares about himself, whatever he said to you about who he wants to be for you, that is your promise. Lord, you said, Lord, you said. And you get to prove it out in everyday life. I am your shield and your exceeding great reward, Abraham. And Abe got to prove this out in life, one day at a time. There's an extended promise in John 15, 1-9 in the Amplified Bible. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Any branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, that stops bearing, he cuts away, trims off, takes away and he cleanses and repeatedly prunes every branch that continues to bear fruit to make it bear more and richer and more excellent fruit. 
You are cleansed and pruned already because of the word which I have given you, the teachings I have discussed with you. Dwell in me and I will dwell in you. Live in me and I will live in you. Just as no branch can bear fruit of itself without abiding in, being vitally united to, the vine, neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever lives in me and I in him bears much abundant fruit. However, apart from me, cut off from that vital union with me, you can do nothing. If a person does not dwell in me, he's thrown out like a broken off branch and withers. Such branches are gathered up and thrown into the fire and they're burned. If you live with me, abide vitally united to me, and my words remain in you and continue to live in your hearts, ask what you will and it shall be done for you. When you bear, produce much fruit, my Father is honoured and glorified, and you show and prove yourselves to be true followers of mine. I have loved you, just as the Father has loved me. Abide in my love. Continue in his love with me. The only condition attached to this particular passage is that you abide, dwell, stay, remain in the place he's put you. This passage contains one of my own early words from the Lord. Without me, you can do nothing. At the time, I found it chilling in its intentionality and purpose. There is nothing, Beryl, that you can do in your own strength. You must be completely reliant on me and me alone. You are to trust in or rely on no one but me. I am your all-sufficiency. Over the years, this has kept me constantly aware that the only fruit that will receive a reward is that which the Holy Spirit bears through me. I have to stay abiding in the vine, abiding in the place that God has put me, in Christ, living in the power and love of God, the risen life. That's the journey that you're on, learning to rest, remain, stay where you've been placed in him. I'm in Christ and he is in me and I am going to stay connected. I'm going to stay connected to that vine. I'm rooted, I'm grounded, I'm going to stay placed here, connected by that root system in all the love, affection, laughter and joy and the life that flows out of heaven. Christ has dealt with your sin. He's killed it. The Holy Spirit's job is to nurture the nature of Christ in you. He only ever deals with you in your new nature. He won't speak to the old. And the Holy Spirit's job is to make you get it. To make you get it that you are the beloved of God in the beloved on whom his favour rests. And he will not rest himself until you really, really get it. That's who I am, the beloved, in the beloved. And when you get it, no cost will be too great to pay to stay there.
The crucified life can only be embraced. It cannot be fought. In order to die, we must embrace the pain of loss, disappointment and dreams, of family and friends. But when you get it, you will be so in love with God. You will voluntarily give everything, knowing the only place of real safety for your heart and all it contains is in his hands. Forsaking all, I trust him. That spells faith. His favour doesn't rest now and then on you, it permanently rests on you because you are in the Beloved. When he looks at you, he sees you through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. He's placed you there in the one place where you can get all your prayers answered and your needs met. Taking hold of this, accepting this, will change the way you think. It will change the way you see. It will change the way you speak. It will change the way you conduct yourself and it will change the way you stand. It will change the way you live, beloved. It will radically change who you are. It will radically change you forever. It will change your language, how you see yourself and how you see other people. How you live your life. It will change your relationships and how you relate. I am a beloved son in whom he is well pleased. Colossians 3, 1-17 in the message says this. It's headed up, he is your life. So if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with the things right in front of you. Look up and be alert to what's going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. Your old life is dead. Your new life, which is your real life, even though invis invisible to spectators, is with God, with Christ in God. He is your life. When Christ, your real life, remember, shows up again on this earth, you'll show up too, the real you, the glorious you. Meanwhile, be content with obscurity, like Christ. And that means killing off everything connected with that way of death. Sexual promiscuity, impurity, lust, doing whatever you feel like when you feel like it, and grabbing whatever attracts your fancy. That's a life shaped by things and feelings instead of God. It's because of this kind of thing that God's about to explode in anger. It wasn't long ago that you were doing all those that stuff and not knowing any better. But you know better now. So make sure it's all gone for good. Bad temper, irritability, meanness, profanity, dirty talk. Don't lie to one another. You're done with that old life. It's like a filthy set of ill-fitting clothes you stripped off and put in the fire. Now you're dressed in a new wardrobe. Every item of your new way of life is custom made by the Creator with his label on it. All the old fashions are now obsolete. Words like Jewish and non-Jewish, religious and irreligious, insider and outsider, uncivilized and uncouth, slave and free mean nothing. From now on, everyone is defined by Christ. 
everyone is included in Christ. So, chosen by God for this new life of love, dress in the wardrobe God picked out for you. Compassion, kindness, humility, quiet strength, discipline. Be even-tempered, content with second place, quick to forgive an offence. Forgive as quickly and completely as the Master forgave you, and regardless of what else you put on, wear love. It's your basic, all-purpose garment, never be without it. Let the peace of Christ keep you in tune with each other, in step with each other. None of this going off and doing your own thing. And cultivate thankfulness. Let the word of Christ, the message, have the run of the house. Give it plenty of room in your lives. Instruct and direct one another using good common sense. And sing, sing in your heart, sing your heart out to God. Let every detail of your lives, words, actions, whatever, be done in the name of the Master, Jesus. Thanking God the Father every step of the way. There, beloved, is your mandate for the risen life, for resurrection, 